This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 2nd of October 2021 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up in the next half hour, Stephen DL joins me to chat through the day's front pages. Plus, we hear from our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, who's employing wily tactics to force a declutter. Every now and then, I will lure him into having a clear out. But, like approaching a skittish old deer in a forest, you have to approach with caution, not revealing your intentions until the very last minute in case your quarry bolts. And Andrew Muller tells us what we learned this week. We learned this week that Northern Ireland is experiencing a clown shortage. So we learned that these are, if nothing else, potentially exciting times for aspiring native Northern Irish jesters. Although, obviously, they have some big shoes to fill. That's all coming up on Monocle on Saturday, here on Monocle 24. First, a quick look at today's main news headlines. Worldwide deaths related to COVID-19 surpassed 5 million yesterday, with unvaccinated people particularly exposed to the highly contagious Delta variant. More than half of all global deaths were in the United States, Russia, Brazil, Mexico and India. Germany's Green Party and the Free Democrats have entered a second round of preliminary coalition talks. The third and fourth place parties from last Sunday's federal election are potentially set to determine Germany's political future, though both sides admit there are fundamental differences on a number of policies. Taiwan has reported that 38 Chinese military jets have flown into its air defence zone, the largest incursion by Beijing to date. The planes, including nuclear-capable bombers, entered the area in two waves. Taiwan responded by scrambling its jets and deploying missile systems. And polls have opened in Qatar in what is the Gulf Arab state's first legislative election. Voters will elect 30 members of the 45-seat advisory Shura Council in an election that stirred domestic debate about electoral inclusion and citizenship. The election, approved in a 2003 constitutional referendum, comes ahead of Doha's hosting the Football World Cup next year. And that's your Monocle 24 News. I'd like to give you a suspenseful pause, Stephen. I was thinking it was rather like um, uh, Just a Minute. It's a very well-known programme around the world on Radio 4, if I'm allowed to talk about the BBC, where you, you get stopped and you lose points if you um, hesitate or deviate. Um, or what's the other one? Hesitation, deviation or repetition? repetition. Yes. And I think that was definitely a hesitation. <laughs> Can I just quickly tell you that my career in radio started when I was 15 and in Zimbabwe, and I was part of the debating club at school and we were asked in to do basically what was a complete rip-off of that program and instead of called just a minute they called it wait a minute and my team won every week for about five weeks and then on the sixth week the presenter didn't turn up and so they said to me okay well you present the show you've done it more often than anyone else so I did and that was the beginning of my my jobs in radio I, I'm impressed I'm hugely girl. impressed hugely <laughs> impressed it took me another another 15 years I was 30 before I got into full-time radio well anyway I think 
think I think I think that counts as, as digression. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Stephen DL, who is our Russia analyst, frequent guest on Monocle Twenty Four, uh, and joining me in the studio now to have a look through the newspapers. And Stephen, it's very hard to ignore what's going on in Britain at the moment. It is. Um, I don't know if there's any other way to to describe it without employing foul language, but uh, it's not good. It's really not good. So we had this massive petrol crisis, which shouldn't have been a crisis at all. Uh, we've also got the police making some appalling comments, uh, re-violence against women. Shall we start with that? Now, this goes back to the murder of Sarah Everard. Yes, and it is, as you say, it's, it's across all the newspapers, all the British newspapers, and that's why it's, it's difficult to avoid um, those two stories. Um, I, the, the details that have come out this week about the awful murder of Sarah Everard back in March by a serving policeman pretending that he was arresting her. I mean, it's just, I'm not going to go into all the details. It really is. It's, it's, it's just so horrible. And yet, you know, you've then had a, a um, metropolitan, uh, not the metropolitan, a police commissioner up in the, in the north of England saying, oh, well, women need to be more streetwise. I mean, it's, uh, what, what, who are these men that, that, that kind of put the blame on women? Mm. You know, this was an innocent woman um, going, you know, walking home, five minutes from home, um, and gets stopped by a policeman. So the police then say, oh, well, if you're stopped by a policeman um, who's not in uniform, then you must challenge him and ask him to ring for his colleagues. I mean, if someone is hell-bent, as Cousins was, on doing what he's going to do... Uh, that that's not going to stop him. I mean, this is lunacy. And, I mean, they also said, and, and, and get away. Well, what, John Paul Menenzies <laughs> d- did exactly that and got shot in Stockwell Station. Yeah, absolutely, yes. You know, so run away. Another one was flagged down a bus. Uh, I, I mean, you know, who are these people? The other thing that I find so distressing is that both the Home Secretary and the head of the Metropolitan Police at the moment are women. And they strike me rather like the kind of woman that Margaret Thatcher was. I remember when Margaret Thatcher was elected as the first Prime Minister of this country and and some women said, oh, isn't it great, we've got a woman who's got to the top. And then the more she behaved, she behaved just like a man. And and they said, well, you know, what's the point? Um, and I think these two women, uh, the Home Secretary and the head of the Metropolitan Police, have done women no favours. And, uh, and they're now coming out with trite comments about how sorry they are and how sad it is and so on. Um, some, you know, some, something that really has got to be done. One little gleam of light, apparently the police, the Metropolitan Police are saying they, they will not now have single un, uh, un, non-uniformed officers on patrol. So maybe that's a, a small start, but it is only a small start. Terrible story. Uh, now, the Prime Minister has come out, Boris Johnson, and condemned this, which is really about the only good thing I can say for him over the last few weeks, because his handling and his government's handling of what has really become a very bad fuel crisis affecting uh, all industries, medicine, for instance, key workers, all sorts of people can no longer get to, to, to their workplace, and many, many vital supplies are not being delivered because there is a shortage of lorry drivers. Now, this is down to many factors. One, of course, is Brexit. Another is coronavirus. Uh, And then, of course, just the conditions for lorry drivers. Why do you want to take a job when the facilities don't really exist along the road, where it's very difficult to eat or sleep well, and where you're not paid well either? Absolutely. And it's... uh, Boris, Prime Minister, I mean, you know, I I, I still go back to the idea that, you know, he loved the idea of becoming Prime Minister, and he will love the idea in his retirement of saying, I was Prime Minister. He just doesn't like the bit in the middle where he is Prime Minister. And they really 
really haven't made any preparation for this. They could they not see? I mean, you know, the, the Brexit vote happened five years ago now, and could they not see that if you stop foreign workers coming and working here? then it's going to have a knock-on effect. And it's in, in fact, it's a double effect at the moment because not only are there not the lorry drivers, but they're also in the food, food industry. They're having huge problems, never mind transporting the stuff to the shelves, of actually producing the stuff in the first place because so many of those workers were from the European Union and, they, and you know, they've, they've had to go home. Um, I thought it was interesting that, um, as I say, of course, the British papers are full of all this. Even the New York Times, which, um, bless its cotton socks, has got some great stories that we will hear. Um, But even on its front page, Britain faces a winter of discontent. Now, for some of us, that really uh, brings back memories because that was a phrase used a lot in the 1970s, uh, which is the last time we had a real real fuel crisis. The government keeps saying there isn't a fuel crisis. OK, why are people queuing up for for hours? Um, My saxophone teacher, I picked up my saxophone again, and I really need a lot more practice. But my saxophone teacher was telling me he came back from a gig last week and he went to his local petrol station, which is about 200 200 metres away. Uh, He went there at midnight and he finally got some fuel at Hoppers 3 in the morning. You know, this is this is this is Britain today. I'm afraid it's quite quite extraordinary. Of course, I grew up in the midst of fuel shortages in Zimbabwe. We always had petrol rationing, and they became quite a social place. Actually, I met some lovely people in the queue. <laughs> well, unfortunately, that that's been one of the problems here. Is that there haven't been lovely people in the queue. There've been fights. Someone drew a knife on someone last week. Um, it, it's it, it's just. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. This is this is Johnson's Britain. Yeah. Well, let's find out what else we've learned this week from Andrew Muller. We learned this week that Northern Ireland is experiencing a clown shortage, so there was that. Once we had diligently heard out the great many laboured expressions of leaden surprise at this information from professional observers of Northern Ireland's politics, we learned that this dearth of harlequins was a consequence of COVID-19, which had prompted a large number of foreign-born punchinellos to return whence they came, presumably all crammed into one very little car. So we learned that these are, if nothing else, potentially exciting times for aspiring native Northern Irish jesters. Although, obviously, they have some big shoes to fill. Thanks for coming out. Try the veal. Let's be having the seamless gear change sound effect. Because while we have long since learned that one place where there wasn't a shortage of clowns was the White House presided over by Donald Trump, huh, am I right? Further amusing and or terrifying details continue to emerge. We learned much this week from the memoir of former White House Press Secretary Stephanie Grisham, the latest of Trump staff to have cashed in on the manifest unfitness to serve of the obvious half-wit and lunatic she dauntlessly defended for years. Honestly, she might have said something at the time, etc. We learned specifically from Ms Grisham's book what we are now passing along, so you've no need to buy it and thereby enrich her with royalties she ill-deserves. That during Trump's term, bewildered White House staff designated one among their number as Music Man and instructed him at times of hot presidential temper, which seems to have been pretty much all the times, to soothe the fevered brow of the man who held power of life and death over us all by playing Trump's favourite show tunes on a piano. 
One of which we learned is indeed the epically lachrymose glop oozing in the background of this item. From which we learned that Trump's insatiable taste for the overwrought, gaudy, puerile, inane and grotesque extends to music and is not merely confined to his furniture, neckties, hair and wives. Come on, like they'd have married the big galar if he'd been a bus conductor. On which subject we also learned of a somewhat discouraging development in ongoing efforts by Trump's elite strike force legal team to prove that he did, in fact, win the 2020 presidential election. Which, just to be clear, he did not. Yet another recount of the votes in Arizona commissioned by Trump allies at tremendous and amusing expense concluded not merely that President Joe Biden won the state, but did so by 360 more votes than previously believed. Anyway, maestro, silly French accordion music. For we learn something of the hazards of electioneering in France. What you heard there was the sound of French President Emmanuel Macron being assailed with an egg flung by an aggrieved citizen. So we learned that one French voter has had an oaf. Didn't you do that one on the daily on Tuesday? I know you did the clown one on Twitter last night. I'm watching you, Andrew. Literally here all week, folks. We also learned of a boom in Shetland pony sales. Prices for the miniature equines have soared, it says here, to record highs due to a surge in popularity among folks confined by the COVID-19 pandemic. Yes, clearly, what with an infectious respiratory disease at large, a lot of people have been getting a little hoarse. <laughs> Please yourself. An impossible indication of the imminent collapse of capitalism and perhaps society as a whole, we learned that financial indices are being outperformed by a cryptocurrency trading hamster. Gox Capital, the business name of a Germany-based rodent called Mr. Gox, is posting returns of about 20%, selecting his preferred magic blockchain beans by running in a wheel, yes, you could call him a wheeler-dealer, then choosing buy or sell by running down one of two tunnels. The trades are placed via contraptions attached to Mr. Gox's hutch. As of this broadcast, Mr. Gox is handily trouncing the FTSE 100, the Dow Jones and Warren Buffett. We're not saying convert everything to cash and stuff your mattress, but we're also not not saying it. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Miller. And Andrew, we're saying equines, really? Is that a very <laughs> camp form of equine? <laughs> We're really just not sure. Love it. Uh, thank you very much to Andrew Muller. Uh, now, listen, the one thing that's really preoccupying us here on Monocle and indeed worldwide, because it has such great uh, ramifications for the rest of Europe, 
is the German election. Took place last week and, of course, still uh, trying to figure out what the likely coalition is going to be. Uh, What's the latest on this? You've got the New York Times open there. I've got the New York Times and the Financial Times, both of which um, go quite big on this. Um, New York Times, is Germany signalling a left turn for Europe? And a similar headline in the FT, Schultz victory gives hope to Europe's left. Um, So this seems to be that both these quality newspapers... um, I shake that there so you can see there's a very large uh, spread inside the um, New York Times as well, um, what German vote means for Europe. It it really does seem to have implications way beyond just Germany. Um, The idea that this centre-left party. I mean, it's it's so so narrow. I mean, you know, they they got in by um, 1.2%, I think it is. Less than, certainly less than 2%. Um, they beat the centre-right, uh, the CDU, CSU. Um, but it, it's, it, it's a glimmer of hope of... I, I think it is hope because what we've talked about a great deal in recent years... Um, perhaps led by Trump, you know, the, the the supposed triumph of populism and the swing to the right, and indeed in Germany, the um, uh, the AFD, the Alternative for Deutschland, um, these, these right-wing parties which seem to have been getting a grip, well, maybe, just maybe, this is a sign that people are waking up and saying, you know, this this is neo-fascism, this is, this is bad, we need to look elsewhere. Um, and so maybe you know maybe it's a, it's a sign and there's encouragement it says that um um uh, in in other parts of europe in in denmark um where the the uh, the left wingers did re- well recently in an election it, it's not all rosy in fact interestingly in the ft that the story comes immediately under um a story saying in inflation rise spurs german pay strikes so um let's not pretend everything in the garden suddenly turning rosy but it i th- i think it's one to watch. It could be the thin end of a wedge of actually people saying we've had enough of populism and of far-right dominance in certain areas. Um, let's get back to putting more of common sense and indeed people in the centre of politics. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, so so many column inches uh, on, on, on all of this, this political horse trading, it's it's kind of well underway. There's a, a, a big piece in France 24, as you would expect about it, wondering what this means for Franco-German relations. Yeah, which of course is now, is now crucial, particularly after the ridiculous decision of Britain to leave the European Union, um, that the, Europe is now once again very much dominated by France and Germany. And um, where they go, I, I'm sure that a lot of the other nations will follow. And their relations have been um, somewhat prickly at times, shall we say. Mind you, you can go back over a few hundred years and say that. But um, uh, if, if, if France were to go more to the left as well, then also, of course, there you've got the, um, you know, the, the, the threat of the right, Marie Le Pen and so on, um, which has been very real in recent years. Uh, that perhaps is, is even more of a sign that, um, as I say, it's not only coming back to the centre, perhaps centre-left, um, but it, it, it is a question, I think this is the crucial thing, is it's pe- putting people back at the centre of politics. And I'm not saying that just as a kind of cliche, but I think that is, that is what, what it's about. You know, populism is, is a, a misnomer in, some, in the sense of it's a small group of hardline right-wingers who tend to take over politics. Um, 
politics is about a lot more than that. And a lot of people, uh, particularly less defensible people um, in, in any society, often feel excluded. Um, maybe this is a way of bringing them back into the, uh, into the, into the, the, the mainstream and, and feeling that they do actually matter. Yeah, yeah. But either way, a bit of a clear-out of the Bundestag. And if we're talking about a clear-out, well, I think it's time that we heard from our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, who's been doing just that. I bought a pair of shoes. I wore them all day, but they felt odd. Didn't quite fit as I had hoped. When I took them off that night, the problem became apparent. They were different sizes. The shop was apologetic and gave me a new pair, and as a bonus, told me to keep the other two shoes too. Nice, but now I had a spare shoe for my right foot and a larger spare shoe for my left foot would only ever be of use if, say, I got gout, puffy foot disease, or intended to enrol in clown school. Now, here's one of those moments where you see how you and your partner approach life in curiously different ways. As I went to put the shoes in the bin, he said, with some strange confidence, you'll regret that. I guarantee that one day you'll wish you'd kept those shoes. Now, the other half gets called many things, not least by me, but, as far as I know, the Grand Seer of Bloomsbury is not one of them. Please explain, I said. I bet you'll lose a shoe and wish you'd had the spares. He can be a wise owl, and believe me, I can lose a lot of things, but so far I have never awoken to find an item of footwear has parted company with me on the journey home. The shoes went into the bin. This approach to life has always divided us and always divided the wardrobe too, in rather unfair proportions. His fulsome side, replete with shirts not worn for a decade, but which he claims he really needs. Or, even more annoying, clothes still with their tags on that he says he is saving for a special occasion. Judging by the number of times he's ignored them on actual special occasions, I have a feeling that he's holding out for a visit to the palace for a knighthood, or the awarding of some ancient medal for Sears. Every now and then, I will lure him into having a clear out. But, like approaching a skittish old deer in a forest, you have to approach with caution, not revealing your intentions until the very last minute, in case your quarry bolts. We, well, I, even have a name for these sessions. They're called Use It or Lose It, and it's a phrase that strikes terror into his heart. The process goes like this. Do you think you'll ever wear these Elizabethan-style elbow-length gloves? He will caress said object and then say with some confidence, no, no, we have to keep them. They're very good gloves. I wore them once when I was in Hamlet. What about this rather tired shirt, I'll say. Again, much sighing. By now, he may have even had to take a seat as it's all getting a little bit too much for him. Well, I used to love it. But, OK, that one can go. Sometimes I appeal to his better judgement and suggest that someone else could be in dire need of one of his 50 stripy shirts. We even make a special halfway house section on the rail where it's agreed that items can hold out for another month to see whether he will use or lose them. You can't play use or lose it for too long, however, as tempers will fray like an old shirt's cuffs. It's also good 
to get the outcasts into a recycling bin fast to ensure that no panic retrieving takes place. We also give the good stuff to Cleo, who has helped keep the house in order for the past 15 years. And she, in turn, sends the stuff to her family and friends in rural Brazil. I like to imagine there's a whole village dressed like my other half, perhaps one person even going about their day in Elizabethan-style gloves and hoping that a rough is in the next clothes drop from Auntie Cleo. Meanwhile, back in London, I've been keeping a close eye on the bin bags awaiting collection on Monday. But if you happen to be in my neighbourhood of Bloomsbury and see a man shuffling around in two clearly different sized shoes, you'll know that I have failed. Very many thanks there to Andrew Tuck, who is our editor-in-chief. And we're standing by because, in fact, we're going to join our editorial director in Zurich, uh, where our uh, autumn market is currently ongoing. So Tyler will be with us shortly. But before we get there, talking about shoes, my shoes, leather has absolutely worn down. Yesterday, I was in Paris and I did, I think it was 22,500 steps. And it was the most beautiful walk, uh, starting up where we were staying near Sacré-Cœur and then going down to a Shakespeare and Company bookshop, which is the purpose of my visit. I wanted to have a, a chat with Sylvia Whitman. I'm going to be in, talking to her. She, of course, is the owner of Shakespeare and Company, talking to her at the Cheltenham Literary Festival next week. And so I thought it would be good for us to meet first because she'll be appearing virtually. Uh, and then I went off to meet um, one of our regular contributors, Florence Biederman. Uh, she is uh, used to be uh, AFP bureau chief in London. Now she's transferred back to Paris. We had a a gorgeous walk around Paris and then lunch. And then finally, we went to another of our contributors' homes, uh, Agnès Poirier. Now, Agnès uh, talks to us about French uh, cultural and current affairs, but she's also written this incredible book called Notre Dame, The Soul of France. And her studio overlooks Notre Dame. And it was amazing. We sat on her balcony looking at all the scaffolding, which is metres away, uh, and talking about why Notre Dame is so important important to the city, but also so important to people all over the world. It was extraordinary. Uh, you're making me very reminiscent. I haven't been to Paris for a, for a couple of years now, and uh, no, it is one of my f- favourite cities. I think it's also wonderful when, when we actually have the time and the inclination to walk around our big cities, um, rather like in London. If, um, if anyone, any tourists are in London and they, uh, uh, they're lost for a thing to do on a Sunday, I think Sunday morning, go to the city of London, the business area, and just walk around and look up and look at the architecture. Um, it, it, it's so wonderful. You see, you see, of course, so much more when you're walking and you can actually stop and if you've got time. So, no, I, I envy you. The idea of uh, having a long walk around Paris, uh, particularly uh, if the weather wasn't too bad. Oh, it was glorious. Um, it was yeah. absolutely glorious. And I have to say it was particularly important to me because I hadn't left the country for 18 months and the last time I left, I was in Zurich. Uh, and uh, Zurich is always a joy, a joy to walk around, a joy to visit and, of course, a joy to reconnect with my colleagues there uh, and, indeed, my boss, Tyler Roulet, who is on the line right now. Good morning to you, Tyler. Good morning, Georgina. Uh, you've got a very exciting market going on there in our uh, Dürfestrasse headquarters. We do. It's the Herbst market. It's the autumn market. So there's pumpkins and gourds out on tables. There's lots of di- uh, gingham tablecloths. And of course, because this is the time of year, there's also a wonderful market. So we have an array of fantastic vendors from the region, from Middle Europa. So from Graubünden to Südtirol uh, and, and of course, uh, points in between. 
Mm. Now, what sort of thing? I mean, I remember there's normally a wonderful hat stand. There, well, I was going to say, uh, you, you, you do like a, a bit of a fedora uh, now and then. <laughs> and, and, and if you were here today, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a rather fetching blue for you. We were, Matt and I were looking at it. This, this, this could be one um, for, for Frau Godwin, maybe. And I, I, like the, I like the sound of Frau Godwin uh, oh, as, as well. Uh, anyway, no, yes, yeah, so Reinhardt, indeed, Reinhard Plank uh, is here. Uh, and uh, he's, uh, of course, yeah, he's got just stacks and stacks of, uh, of great uh, felt hats and, and, and interesting beanies and all kinds of things. Um, there's also a great group uh, here called uh, The Cocktail. Uh, that's Casper uh, Fenkart. And they're doing ready-made cocktails. Uh, really just, I mean, fantastic. And one is called the Lowered Ferrari. And so <laughs> all you need, it's just, it's just add ice. They look fantastic, uh, of course, uh, in, in a bar. We have Odor here. Um, this is, uh, they're out of, out of Graubünden. So they've got four fantastic fragrances. Lodenfei uh, with Yelmoli Department Store. They're here as well. And then also really great chocolate company, um, 58, who are out of uh, out of Murano. And of course, we, we can't talk about Murano without having Linda here as well. So we've also got part of our, our Sudtirol contingency is here today. Fantastic. And now another person who I know normally turns up at these events is the chestnut man who's so gorgeous. Well, Chestnut Manor, I hate to say, because you're not here, he's not here. Oh. So we'll wait for Christmas market. Uh, that I think that is the, I don't have a diary in front of me, is that the third or the fourth or something? So... Book your flight now, Georgina. <laughs> Put your hand up. Get on the rota. We know that you're out on the loose in the world, so uh, you'll, you'll be able to come for the Christmas market, which is crazy to think it's two months from today. I know. Completely yeah. crazy. And it's not going to happen in Britain at all because of the lorry crisis. It would well, no, no, it's not. Well, thank, thank God for reindeers and sleighs. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, Tyler, the market's going on all day? It is. The market's going on all day up until uh, 1900 Zurich time. Uh, and, I, you know, listen, I, I, I haven't heard uh, the gurgle of the, uh, of, of, of the, uh, the beer uh, dispenser uh, of the taps open yet, but they are open. Uh, so there's going to be pretzel and, and Weisswurst and, and, of course, lots of beer. Um, and I, I think it probably, it probably won't end at 1900 sharp, Georgina. I think it sounds amazing. Tyler, will we be hearing from you again today? We will. Uh, we've got a, a great uh, group of, of people coming up, a lot of, also, of course, familiar voices. Chanda Kurt is going to be here a, a little bit later. Uh, Katya Weber, uh, which is fantastic. And also in flight right now is our very own Fiona Wilson. Fiona Wilson is flying in from Tokyo. We, most of us have not seen her for two years. Uh, so she's flying in from our Tokyo Bureau. She'll be here later. She'll also be a guest uh, with me tomorrow morning on Monocle on Sunday. Fantastic. Tyler Brule in Zurich. Thank you very Thanks, much Georgina. indeed. Now, talking about flying, Stephen, there's a couple of really great space stories in the paper today. Yes, both of them in the eye, um, which is a kind of easy to read. It's, it hasn't got so many um, uh, extra supplements and so on. And um, the first story, when you open up on page three, is about um, you, uh, Julia Pirisilt. Now, if you don't immediately say, ah, Julia, yes, uh, she is a, a well-known actress in Russia. Um, and she, on Tuesday of the coming week, is going to fly into space and uh, go to the International Space Station where they are going to film uh, scenes to go into a feature film. Um, and uh, it's a bit of a one-upmanship for the Russians over the Americans uh, because Tom Cruise is planning to do something similar and was hoping to go fairly soon with the help of, um, of both NASA and uh, SpaceX. Um, but the Russians have beaten them to it again. And it, it, there's a kind of irony to that because, of course, the Russians were first into space with, with the satellite, with Sputnik, uh, first into space with a human being, with uh, Yuri Gagarin, first into space with a woman, with Valentin 
Tereshkova. Um, so uh, uh, Yulia Pirisild perhaps kind of fits into that uh, that that that. Uh, litany of, of firsts as well um, but then we turn over a few pages and uh, this is it sounds a sort of rather titillating story but it's actually a very serious story um, close encounters of the sexual kind could give astronauts a stellar boost um, when, whenever I've been, I've been involved a bit with, with space and the cosmonauts exhibition at the Science Museum a few years ago and, and, a, and a question that people slightly blush and, and sort of whisper is, is has there ever been sex in space? Has anyone ever had... Well, there are very few people who would have been in that position to know and no-one knows, no-one's ever said yes. Um, uh, but it's, and it's not just a titillating question. It's, it's, it, the, the, these psychologists, um, some of them from Concordia University in Canada are saying, look, this is a really serious question we, we've got to look into because if we're talking about populating other planets, be it the moon, be it Mars or whatever in the years to come, um, you know, it's going to take a couple of years to get to Mars. Uh, if you're going to populate it, you need people and the way of making people is sex. <laughs> and so, oh, no, so, not necessarily. You could be, you know... Well, I suppose you could yeah, could have test tube, test tube babies, but um, it would be far more fun, I'm sure. <laughs> but, it'd be, you know, it's fascinating to think in weightlessness... What goes weightless? What 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 happens? Um, it, it is, from a biological and scientific point of view, a fascinating question, as well as a rather titillating one. Uh, and also, can you be naked? Because you, I mean, you've at least some of your bits have got to be exposed, and you never see anybody in space except when they've got a huge spacesuit on. Uh, well, you do. Well, you see them on the on the exercise machines, oh, you know, true. in sort of t-shirt and shorts. Yeah. So um, I imagine that's not a problem but um presumably it's just so you know normal human embarrassment so far although you know space to go into space to be an astronaut you've got to be super fit anyway so um i'm sure that many of them could expose i'm sure in training they expose themselves to each other they go through some pretty rigorous nasty things um you know it's rather like rather like actors you know yes darling you know just do what you will you know look this is me this is my body um i i don't think too many of them would get would get embarrassed in front of other of other astronauts and cosmonauts um but it's it's you know it, it is an interesting scientific study Absolutely. And perhaps you could marry the two, the film being shot in space and these sexual experiments. You could just do like a, a really, really le- realistic love film. I'm sure that's, that's, that's got to be next. <laughs> space porn would probably be and I'm sure it might come next. Do you know what? I think we're going to stop there, Stephen. I'm not quite sure I like the direction that this conversation's going in. But I can tell you that coming up a little bit later on today, we'll be checking in once again with Tyler Brule, our editorial director in Zurich, where the autumn market is currently going on at uh, 90 Dürferstrasse. So if you're in the city, do get down there. It is going to be fabulous. And we'll have uh, a whole load of people talking about that on the station uh, over the next few hours to come. That's it from uh, Monocle on Saturday. I'm Georgina Godwin. Many thanks to our producer, Carlotta Rebello. Carlotta, I apologise for getting your name wrong. And to our studio engineer, Nora Hull. And of course, Monocle on Saturday will return at the same time next week. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 